with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Well, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, good day to everyone, and welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I am Rod Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper around the unknown, the unexplained, the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsinki. Yes, it's still me. I'm not gone yet. And joining me, as usual, the blonde bombshell herself, Ann Carrigan. Hey, hey, good evening, everybody. How you doing? Hope you're staying warm out there. What do you mean? It's Wherever only 20, 20 degrees. Wait till uh, Saturday. Know, it's, right? uh, minus four below, minus 10 below, or whatever. The 37, who knows? Mm. I don't know. It's anyway. winter in New England. You know, it is what it is. Exactly. Uh, uh, get over it. Yeah. So anyways, uh, we have a guest on the show tonight and it's someone I've known for a long time now. I, uh, uh, him and his brother, which they look alike for some reason, but not really. I don't know. Do they look alike or not? Do you? Yes. Of you course think? they do. I don't know. They're I twins. can tell them Can't you? Well, Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, they're not identical. Kyle's the better looking one, they're right? very similar. Kyle's the better looking one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Got my vote. <laughs> Anyways, joining us now is demonologist Kyle Johnson. Hello there. Good evening to you all. Hello. Yeah. Hello, yes. Yeah, I'm so the, generally considered the better-looking twin, but you haven't polled his wife yet, so <laughs> she would differ, I'm sure. Yes. So, uh, you know, thank you so much for taking time out of fighting demons to uh, come on the show. I mean, that's that's very nice of you. <laughs> so, uh, Carl, demonology, we, we, we've talked about it before. We talked about how you and your brother get started and everything else, the Johnsons, the... Uh, Conjuring house, all of that before. And you really kept up with it. A lot of people, you know, they change with the weather. Um, yeah. But you, you are sticking with it. And um, is it, is it, I'm, I'm curious because what does the demonologist do specifically? I mean, is there enough work for you to start with? Well, that can depend on the demonologist, and I certainly am consulted a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't go out on all the cases that I, to which I'm summoned because I don't have that, like you see in the TV shows or you know, paranormal reality shows, have the band pulling up and they unload their equipment, and oh, uh, yeah. I can't always do that. You know? mm-hmm. But I have traveled some, you know, of course, you know, with uh, first with ghost hunters, and then uh, being on various television shows. Uh, if the uh, epi- if the investigation and intervention was being documented for a television show, then they would fly me there to the client's house. So that worked out very well. And of That's course, good. a lot more happened than you'd see recorded on the television show. Right. Right. Yeah, but uh, there are two types of demonology that I perceive. Um, there is, first of all, academic demonology, which is just somebody who's a student of demon lore and you know does the uh, does the reading and the study. And is a specialist in 
you know, demons and nether spirits. And there is applied demonology where somebody will actually address cases, be consulted, receive calls and emails and messages, and, and when possible, go out and address those cases in person. So I try to apply both. I try to be a, you know, an applied demonologist as well as a, an academic demonologist. Mm-hmm. And uh, my my definition of demonology is the systemized study of law, the systemized study of the uh, law and cultural traditions of wicked spirits. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's a broad. I can leave for like a broad definition. But so, we usually think of a demon. Oh, go on. You ask me because I'll. Yeah, yeah, have okay, a nice yeah because well, you, I'd like to, you know, follow up on that because you said, uh, uh, what was your exact word? Uh, something spirits. Oh, yep. The lore and cultural tradition. It's the systemized study of the lore and cultural traditions of w- wicked spirits. Wicked, okay, you know, like spirits. evil. Just, yeah, yeah. Wicked spirits. Okay, yeah. so the question is, uh, so then demons, uh, you're classifying them as spirits. Yes. Spirits, a very general term. I mean, we don't have uh, clinical terminology for these mm-hmm. things. So yeah, I call them wicked spirits, and the spirits could be a ghost, could be a demon, could be, you know, a shade, could be even a, a shadow person. But, mm-hmm. you know, just the categorizing is, is, you know, the overall category, umbrella term of demons. Uh, I mean, of uh, spirits right. all put together. So it's it's pretty broad that then it's you deal with all of those particular things or, or do you specialize in, in demons? You specialize in uh, evil spirits. Uh, <laughs> that's what I get called about mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. That's how I became a demonologist. These are the cases that other uh, um, usually paranormal groups, paranormal investigators don't want to handle themselves. And now we get a message saying, Hey, Carl, we're in over our heads with this one. Can you help us out? Mm -hmm. And it's up to me to try and figure out how to address it and what to do. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of psychology that comes into play because uh, belief in demons is just that. It's a belief in in that these things are lethal forces and can, can do us harm and invade our lives. And, of course, there is some reality to that. So that's what a demonologist must do. When you think of demonologists, I think what, what comes to people's mind is someone wielding a cross and sprinkling holy water and dry, being a specialist and driving out the spirits. <laughs> well, that, that can work as long as the subject you're assisting believes that they can be driven out. <laughs> you know, if, because it does a, it's a lot of subjectivity. Belief that the demons are harmful, that they are lethal forces. So do you think like some of these shows that are on TV are really doing more harm than good? Because, you know, we've, we've trans, I mean, you remember your early days on ghost hunters when you guys went out and originally you would go and you would say whether a place was uh, haunted or not. So you, 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 and sometimes you would declare them not haunted, but then it soon became every place was haunted and and soon it became haunted by uh, more evil and more thing. and, And now it seems like there's demons everywhere. Uh, are we yeah. creating these demons, or is it just uh, entertainment? Well, I'll say yes to both parts of that question. <laughs> um, yeah, I I don't think they do overt harm. The, these shows they they do entertain people and, and they educate to some small degree. 
but it is easy to jump the gun and say that, you know, oh, it's demonic because it, I don't feel good about it. They're, they're, my room is dark and, you know, I just feel like I'm being watched all the time. Yeah, and that can, in essence, create the demon or emulsify it. And it's too easy to attribute things to demonic force uh, just because it's uncomfortable. Well, if you've got a spirit around you or what is supposed to be a spirit, it, you're going to feel it. There's going to be aware of being, you know, that sensation of being watched, observed. And that's um, ominous because it's mysterious and therefore or potentially dangerous. So people get all wound up thinking, you know, I've got a demon in my house. I know I do. And that's what I'm wary of when I get contacted and people have self-diagnosed. I mean, they mean well, but uh, they may have self-diagnosed that they have this demon. And I'm like, well, how do you know it's a demon? What tells you this? You know, and demon itself is poorly defined. It's just, mm-hmm. it's supposed to be an, an inhuman spirit that never walked the earth. Right, exactly. Form. That's, that's yeah. my my uh, mm-hmm. understanding of the word. Yeah, and they're, they're very subtle, these these creatures, if you will. And um, they're, they're not always the the, the type that, of spirit that scares people and appears and moves things around. It's, it's really hard to decipher and, you know, like tell the difference between what could be termed a poltergeist and a demon. Mm-hmm. I've referred to a demon as a poltergeist with a really poor attitude. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and, and sometimes it can be hard initially to tell the difference. And uh, yeah, Ron, I sent you uh, a couple of pictures of demon faces that I have. It's rare to capture a, a ghost that you feel is legitimate on film mm-hmm. uh, or, uh, you know, video and much more rare to find a, a demon face. And I, in, in this case, I believe I have two. I mean, I can't refute them. I can't say that they're not. I I will post those on our Facebook page, uh, Ghost Chronicles. Yes, you're uh, welcome to post any of those pictures. Please do. Yeah, because you, you talked about them, and, and at least the people can uh, see what you you created and uh, what you captured. Excuse me, not created. Hopefully, you didn't create them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, hopefully, not bring this into being. Yes. Yes. Oh. You got a question, Ann? Well, yeah, I was I was going to say, so, you know, you might have a ghost in your house and you might live with a ghost perfectly amicably. And But what might cause a demon to be in your home? What would be a cause for that any more than a like a ghost? I don't even know. Trauma. Trauma. Past trauma, unresolved conflict. I've never run into a, what I was classif- have classified as a demonic case that didn't have an element of unresolved personal conflict in the part of the subject. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, something went wrong and some, something divided the person's life. And, you know, I think most human beings are subject to some trauma in our lives. But it has to be something overt and something that really disrupted the personality flow. And that's what to get at the core at the core of i've gone into houses where people say oh we have a demon in the house well you've got to get rid of this and uh it turns out that the haunting you know the the, the pk paras you know psychokinesis is actually a symptom rather than the cause of the trouble uh, because mm-hmm. the house in its essence is screaming due to the occupants the house mm-hmm. actually takes on a personality of some and it's screaming mm-hmm. it's revolting um and I find out through, you know, the interview process that these people have gone through quite a 
quite a travail in their times, and it might even be familial, you know, like generational. Not so much a generational curse, but takes that form. And um, so the problem is rooted in that past trauma, and it is important for the interviewer and the, the parapsychologist, or the demonologist especially, to get at the core of what causes. Where did it start? Uh, when did things, when do you feel they went kaflui and, and not normal? Well, most people I've found, uh, the majority of persons will say, oh, it's when we moved into this house, and all of a sudden everything was normal in it. And all of a sudden, things started moving, and we started feeling sick all the time. Well, that's not always when it started. You go back, and things have been may have been horrendous in the person's childhood or earlier life, mm-hmm. and um, just has not been addressed. And there are, of course, somatic uh, causes to consider, like uh, you know, is is there radon in, in the soil in the basement? Is Correct. you know, is is there a leak like even a gas leakage? Is something infiltrating the home or some, you know, electromagnetic based devices in the house have an electric leak or are they near high tension wires that are faulty? And it's it's subtle, but there are all these things to consider. And you try to make a a panoramic picture of it all and come to a conclusion. You may never find the answer. That's what's tough for a paranormal investigator. the, The big to know. I just sometimes I don't know. And it's here. What I don't ascribe to is the, uh, well, I uh, was well acquainted with Ed and Lorraine Warren, right. you know, and uh, we had a good association for a time. Oh, this goes back to, um, gee, I think Ron had dark hair back then. No, <laughs> even I had hair back then. <laughs> had well, hair. I, was, I wasn't, I wasn't going to go that far because I'm <laughs> headed there myself, but uh, I don't change <laughs> myself. Um but I'll tell you, uh, my association with Ed and Lorraine Warren began back in 1972. April of 1972 is when I met Ed and Lorraine Warren. And uh, what I didn't know at the, the night I met them, that I would go on to be lecturing with Ed and Lorraine Warren. Not only like three times, but I lectured with them and uh, investigated with them. And it was... Uh, my brother and I, as members of a team based at Rhode Island College, that uh, introduced the Warrens to the Perrins, that infamous or famous house in Harrisville, Rhode Island, now known right. as the Conjuring House. It yeah. would it would be 40 years later. It would be dubbed the Conjuring House. And that's its official moniker now. They call it the Conjuring House. Mm. Now, nobody wants to say the farm on Round Top Road. Right. It's, you know, or the Richardson House. It's you know, just... People know what you mean when you say The Conjuring House, and it's a movie title. Um, but that's how uh, Ed and Lorraine became involved in The, the Conjuring House. So, now, the Warren's methodology when it comes to demonology, and Ed Warren was a lay demonologist. Demonologists back in his day, earlier days were always clerics. There were demonologists going back to the 1930s and 40s. They were academically credited, although not called demonologists, but it was accepted that there were there were clerics, you know, um, ordained ministers and priests. Um, Ed Warren was the first recognized lay demonologist, recognized by the Catholic Church, and mm-hmm. he used to uh, always mention that. Um, but he would have certain criteria to detect a demonic haunt. Lorraine was the clairvoyant, the sensitive, the intuitive. But Ed would uh, look for the symptoms of a demonic haunt. And it would be things like, you know, foul smells that come and go and with an undetectable source and people getting 
mysteriously illness overtaking them. And then they're suddenly better. Then they feel oppressed and ill again. Uh, the residents of a house being withdrawn without apparent cause. Um, three raps on the walls or the door. You know, that was a sign of the demonic. Shadowy forms seen darting about the people we see out of the corner of their eyes. So this, to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Warren, was all criteria for a demonic haunt. Now, that is very interpretive. You know, I don't believe that classifies a house as having a demonic haunt or a person to be oppressed by a demon. You know, to an objective paranormal investigator or parapsychological investigator, those things are, yeah, they could be symptoms of a haunt. They could be something quite explainable, you know, once one employs the proper, you know, empiric reasoning. Uh, or they could be a genuine paranormal PK manifestation, but still not necessarily demonic. They add a culture, like putting a, a color, like putting a, a, a colored filter over a, a photograph. It's like that effect. They interpret it as demonic because it has what you could vaguely, uh, you know, cite as that criteria. You know, okay, people are getting ill in the house, and the three knocks, that's got to be a sign of the devil. But, you know, I just didn't think it was that simple then. I certainly don't think it's that simple now. But you see how it can be interpreted because it provides an answer. When somebody declares, especially a specialist, such as myself or, or my brother Keith Johnson or John Zaffis, when somebody is recognized as a specialist, a demonologist, and that person comes in and says, we believe you have a demon here. Well, that's, that's, got, uh, that's got impact to it. You know? And rarely will a demonologist worth his or her salt say such a thing. They won't declare it to be demonic. They, they will speak of it when they're themselves relatively certain that it is but you know to speak that may also create it mm-hmm. you know yeah and yeah, like i said but, demon I mean, is vaguely defined in itself but you know it's like there's so many aspects of this i mean i i think it's a, a totally misunderstood uh profession and, and i mean there's so many ghost hunters go out there and, and they go out and they throw some sage around and everything else and they they think, you know, oh, I'm doing some good here. I'm doing that. And, and they really don't. They make things worse, actually. And, and like that's yeah. probably when you get your calls uh, because mm-hmm. they, they don't know what the hell they're doing. They see something on TV and, and they said, oh, I can handle this. And, uh, you know, I've I received calls like that as well. But it, it's it, right. people just don't realize that, you know, what we do sometimes is it's not all fun and games. No, and as you said, people mean well. Um, Sometimes it's better not to address the problem and just let it try to resolve itself, or perhaps Mm -hmm. eventually it will, rather than go in and muck things up, you know, know, with the wrong approach. Um, Because that gives an answer. People are always looking for the answers. We've got a haunt. What is it? What's bothering us? Well, you may never know because it's it's something basically invisible. It's, It's a psychic force. It's affecting one's mind and one's, you know, psychic equilibrium. But, you know, but we need an answer. What could this be? And it might not, sometimes it's tough to say, you know, we don't have an answer rather than uh, ascribe it to demonic. As the end said before, you know, people have ghosts in their house sometimes. They're not uh, really harmful to them at all. It's just that sometimes you get some investigators in the house or mediums and, and they're, they're telling you all kinds of things and and they scare the bejesus out of you (laughs) 
And when you're oh really, yeah, they, they no can detail. yeah. There's really no detail. And then people, well, the real harm with that is then people are thinking this demon is in my house and it's watching me all the time. Well, your mind, someone's someone's mind, their their subconscious is always watching them. That's why we have this general feeling that we're always being watched. I always feel like I'm being watched because I'm observing myself. But that can seem like a detachment if you if it's projected, you know, if it's removed from a one's you know sense of oneself, then it, it does feel like this entity is is in the walls and watching people in the mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. And, and once that's established, people are dreading it. And dread is a potent tool of the demon, even if that demon is a, a construct, a psychological manifestation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll give you an example if I may. I'll try to make it brief. <clears throat> Uh, my first residential case was that house in Harrisville, the, the Conjuring House. Mm-hmm. I can honestly say, were not for myself, that never that franchise would not have happened. I mean, I am. I'm saying this without any hubris. I'm just explaining. Um, if it weren't for myself, that whole franchise and Conjuring's one, two, and three movies and Annabelle just would not have transpired. I am the one essential component. Now that sounds kind of like stuck on myself or exaggeration, but it's not. I just happened to be at that place at that time and a chain reaction ensued. And, you know, and of course I was actively involved in that first investigation. It wasn't all by chance, but I didn't, you know, 50 years ago think, Hmm, the parents house. Now this could be a great movie. No, anything <laughs> like that, but I did think it was going someplace, but it was my first case. Now it oh, rabbit trailing. It happened because I attended a lecture presentation given by Ed and Lorraine Warren at Rhode Island College in April, I think it was April 16th, 1972. Now, during that time, during that lecture, Ed Warren had an audience interaction going and he called on me because I had raised my hand to several of his questions. And then he said, come up here, young man. Well, I was 17 at the time. Come up here, young man. And we started, we engaged in a conversation, and I became part of that first lecture. Therefore, the persons who uh, sponsored and organized that lecture, uh, it was a group based at Rhode Island College called PYRO, Parapsychological Investigatory and Research Organization. Right after that lecture, they were waiting for me, and they invited me. Can you come to our next meeting? We're having a meeting Tuesday. Can you come there? And so I did, and I became a member along with my brother, uh, who was also at that lecture. But I was the one who got up on stage, was called up. You know, it felt kind of like I was being called to the principal's office. Like this man <laughs> with this deep resonant, this demonologist man is like, uh, "Come up here, young man. Oh God, I'm going to get some detention now." So I was invited to join Pyro. Because I was a member of Pyro, uh, we had the first investigation. A paranormal investigation of that house because we were contacted by uh, a Carolyn Perrin who wanted us to come and evaluate the strange activity in her and her husband Roger's farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. That is because my brother placed an ad in a local periodical to advertise our group that we would come and evaluate houses. Really? Check out hauntings. So you see what I'm driving at. It's because I went to that lecture that Ed Warren mm-hmm. called on me because I was called on this group Pyro invited me to join their, their team at Rhode Island college. Because of that, my brother came with me and my brother placed an ad in a paper. That was his idea to advertise our group so we could branch out from exterior cases and address residential situations. 
And because of that, Mrs. Perrin called us, called upon us, and she came to the college, was interviewed by us. And because we were investigated that, that case, we as a team decided we could, you know, call in Ed and Lorraine Warren, with whom I was well acquainted. And uh, it's not that we ever felt we were in over our heads. No, we were just conducting to the best of our uh, abilities and equipment at that time. We were conducting a scientific investigation. We decided well, what a good touch it would be to call in Ed and Lorraine Warren and benefit from their vast experience. Call upon them to consult. We decided to consult Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed Warren volunteered to go to the house in person. He and Lorraine would show up there. They thought they were on something good. Oh, so okay, we're going to be working with the Warrens. And I remember speaking to Mr. Warren on the phone, saying, "Now, I understand we'll be working together with you." Oh, absolutely. You know, send over your case notes. Well, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren came there, and we hadn't been investigating since August, and they came there towards the end of September in 1973. And uh, we were all happy to be working with the Warrens. And, you know, I showed them all around, and Carolyn mm-hmm. gave a tour of the house. And I was part of that. Uh, our team didn't know that that would be the last time we'd see the Perrins family. I didn't really? see them for another 40 years after that because mm. the Warrens actually, well, how should I put it? Usurped the case, took over it. Mm-hmm. And Carolyn Perrin, who had been calling me every day for oh, a few weeks, uh, she suddenly dropped off and I didn't hear from her. And we had a well, meeting. Well, I'm our actually going to have to usurp you because we have to take a break. Please do. Oh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll welcome the break. Okay. So anyways, sure you're listening to uh, Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with uh, Ann and Ryan right here on Tojanet, brought to you by uh, Circles of Wisdom, 386 Merrimack Street, Methuen, Massachusetts, and the Glant Messier Family Law Group, 15 High Street, North Andover, Massachusetts. And our very, very good friends on Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. Uh, you too can become a member. It's three bucks a month and you have access to over 40 exclusive videos so uh check it out less than a cup of coffee anyways uh we'll be right back with our special guest carl johnson a paranormal event book or something else you want people to know about then why not advertise it on ghost chronicles radio with over 150,000 downloads a month get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject we have a plan at a cost that fits your needs for more information contact ron kolick at any ghost project at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678 hello Hello, can you hear me? My name is Harry Price. I am speaking to you via the medium of the Ghost Box. Many of you will know I carried out the first live radio broadcast from Haunted House way back in 1936 for the BBC. Now, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, I am still able to keep abreast of 21st century ghost hunting by listening to Ghost Chronicles International on Togginet, Parax Radio, The Ghost Channel, and even on something called a podcast. Two splendid chaps host it. One is an American who calls himself New England's own Van Helsing. Although I have discovered his real name is Ron Kolek. 
The other is Stephen Parsons, and he's a paranormal scientist. Well, mustache, I'm required elsewhere on something called a K2. But don't forget, I'll be listening in every Tuesday from 8 o'clock in Great Britain and 3 o'clock on the American Eastern Seaboard. I trust you will join me there. I didn't know it went on that long. And welcome back to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. You have to let it breathe like a fine bottle of wine. Right? With Ron and Ann and our very special guest this evening, demonologist Carl Johnson. Yeah, it's a long tune, man. Yeah, well, you have to let it breathe. It's a fine <laughs> wine. Anyways, Kyle, you were saying that uh, that was the last uh, time you uh, were back in the uh, conjuring house till four years later. Yes, and I was trying to make that concise, but I failed miserably because I wanted to tell a story to tell a story, you know, like that that I I am the the single one component that uh, if it were not for me, if I had decided to skip that, uh, seeing that lecture at uh, Roberts Hall in Rhode Island College, there'd be nothing, there'd be no conjuring, there'd be none of those movies would have been made, you know, it is a chain reaction kind of thing. It absolutely is. Now, now. So you you do believe in demons, though, right? Demons as a separate entity, something that has never walked the earth before. I'll give that a qualified yes, but I think they are. I like this. I I, I don't believe in their objective reality as far as, you know, they were here. They predate the human race and they are fallen angels. I mean, there's a part of my mind that will always, always wonder and, you know, I'd be a little little apprehensive about that. Perhaps it is that literal definition. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it is, and through my and filtered through my rational mind, uh, I think they are the components of, of the human mind. I think they are, I think they're, the fantasy becomes reality. And that sounds like I'm saying it's mythology. No, they're real. They're, they're lethal forces. But I think they are inextricably intermeshed with the human psyche. Mm-hmm. I think they come from us, you know. I think demons evolved along with Homo sapien intellect. You know? Okay. Now I could lo- I could lose my demonology badge for that. Yeah, but yeah. I mean I will <laughs> yeah. allow. I will allow. I just cannot know. Yeah, I I, I can't. You know, I being the good old Catholic boy, I I definitely believe in them, and and I've certainly run across them in in, in my investigating, and and I used to work, especially on in the beginning before. He moved away uh, with Brian, who was a Franciscan monk, on on uh, several exorcism cases, and yeah. so to me, they're real in my mind. Uh, they 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 do exist, um, and most people like in possessions. People will believe that possession that that uh, you know there's only one type, but there are very different types of obsession. There there's uh, a possessions. There's like an uh, demonic obsession where a demon stalks you and and does things to uh, make your life miserable uh, without taking over your body. Uh, 
but there are there are different types of that. Uh, do you find that true, or is that just uh, you you don't believe that? Well, there is generally that would be referred to as oppression, where the demon is after the person and making their life generally miserable, but not mm-hmm. actually possessing the person. Right. It is impossible to tell at with absolute certainty mm-hmm. what's happening there. Um, but I think every every case of demonic oppression or possession of which I have heard uh, could be rooted in the human psyche. You know, I don't see that this really a separation, but now I really have to qualify that it takes on its own life and becomes real. Once the demon is dreaded, believed in and dreaded, then it's potent. Then, of course, it will fit the criteria of demon. It will do all those things it's supposed to do, like, you know, making the person feel watched all the time, rapping on the wall. And I'll always be fascinated by this dichotomy because I, I have to wonder, is it just as simple as I was used to be taught and as I came to believe that uh, demonic is something altogether different? It's in a different realm, interdimensional, like uh, as its own reality and mm-hmm. seeps into our reality. I, uh, I just can't know. I mean, there's so many things, quite frankly, that it's most difficult to, to prove. Um, you know, the, the Catholic Church has been fighting demons for thousands of years. So, uh, you know, to me, they're the experts. And even in the, the exorcism, the movie, the original uh, religion, they called in the Catholic priests to, to do the exorcism because that was something they didn't deal with. And, it, you know, th- right. there's so many things like you, you look at, you remember uh, Paranormal State, uh, what's his name, Ryan Bull? Uh, Ryan Bull, yeah. Yeah, he used to always say, oh, I can't say the, say the name of the demon. Well, I have a book, an old, old book, a hard-covered book that's older than me with all the demons' names in it. And I always understood is that if you, that gives the power to the exorcist if he knows the demon's name versus the other way around uh, where you're giving the demon power. Uh, but I see where that would fit into your theory that the we make the demon. So if we pick a name, then we are making that entity, whatever it is, uh, mm-hmm. that that thing. So that's what you're saying, then, right? Yes, I would say that. That uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not the supernatural explanation, but I think it's the truer explanation. You know, demons will always be dreaded, will always wonder if they are, or some people are assured they are supernatural beings. But with every hint, you know, once the demon is embraced as a reality, as a separate objective reality, then uh, it will escalate uh, every time the person who is oppressed or afraid hears something that sounds like three knocks, and it might be, or, um, Mm-hmm. They see that shadow form out of the corner of their eye, or they smell something strange. Our olfactories are playing tricks on us sometimes. Mm-hmm. They smell something strange, and you know it can be the, uh, the a sweet odor like that of roses, or you know it comes and goes. You know every time they get that reinforcement, they're going to think it's the demon after them, and that's what I was leading up to with that long diatribe of how I became involved in that house in Harrisville mm-hmm. was that. Um, 
that was my first residential case in Harrisville, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, my second residential case turned out to be a, a situation that was full-blown demonic possession. Met okay. met that all the criteria good. of that. Yeah. Well, that's how I became known as a demonologist. Uh, one time somebody brought to me, a friend brought to me an article or let me know about it. He said, you know, there's an article and I don't remember the magazine it was in, but there's an article about you in this magazine. And it's about the Warrens, but it mentions you. And it said, uh, Carl Johnson, the demonologist from Rhode Island. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I kind of like that. I, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll go with somebody's. Yeah, until somebody says I'm not, you know, I will be one. Mm-hmm. And it's funny about letting people let it be known you're a demonologist. You can get a you can get a better seat at a restaurant or a movie theater because you stop <laughs> talking about it. People, people, even if you don't mean to let it be heard, people back off. But you get invited to better parties than if you're an angelologist. But he invites the angelologist. Yeah, they'll invite you to like, you know, um, candle selling party and tea parties <laughs> but you don't get to do it one once you know uh but actually to in seriousness to be a demonologist you have to have a component of angelologist you know you have to be somewhat versed in angel lore because they're thought to be polar opposites but that first case that was in providence rhode island in 1980 um 1980 into 1981 the subject was a 14 year old boy who was fits of what was these episodes what was thought to be demonic possession it certainly met it they met that criteria um but we have things in mind now i evaluated differently from what i did then i was always looking for some psychological aspect to this but what have we got here you know yes it was demonic i say that to this day it was a demonic possession case um but that boy was 14 years of age and this started when he was 13 so He's in a transitional, you know, and entering adolescence, uh, establishing his own sense of self. Um, his family, he was born in New York, but his family was of Hispanic origin. They came from Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic. Uh, his godmother was Santerian. And wow. of course, these these folks, you know, from early on, it's inculcated into them that they, there's, you know, spirit. Spirits all around us, spirit intervention, spirits can assault us, spirits can help us. Basically Roman Catholic, but with spiritual trappings. So you got all that going on. It created a lodestone. This created the demon. He was getting possessed, and he did things physically that he should not have been capable of doing. And it's it's tough to say it's psychological in nature when when a religious picture flies off the wall and religious icons are tipped over and the a picture of Jesus inverts itself and a floor in the house shakes and my chair with me in it was propelled back across the floor oh into God. the wall and back. I mean, a lot, a lot. this can't be, that's not normal stuff, but I still think the mind can do that. This it's psychokinesis. It creates a poltergeist, which can be, you know, synthesized and it makes all those symptoms. You know, just enough to really convince one. And of course, people who are brought up with that belief, there's, there's no doubt. What else could it be? We're, we're coming in to cast out the demon because the demon has come upon us. It's entered our house through the subject of the 14-year-old boy. But another factor, in 1972, a book by William Peter Blatty, The Exorcist, is published. Very popular. 
quickly a movie is made about that, which premiered in December of 1973. You know, it actually came to distributed to theaters in early 1974. Um, you've got The Exorcist, which is still a scary film. You know, yes, it, it it's really a psychological punisher. You've got The Exorcist. <laughs> so people have the criteria in our Western culture. Now we know what a an ancient, you know, an old European demon, as it was believed in this possession, as it would have been 400 years ago. You know, we know what a demon is. We know what it can do. We know it changes the subject's voice. We know it throws them around the room. One of probably the eeriest thing that happened was the night, the first night I stayed over at this house. It was the Armory, Armory District in Providence, Rhode Island, Messer Street, and um, the West End of Providence, Rhode Island. I even then had a reputation as someone who'd stand his ground and, you know, trying supernatural situations. So I was invited to stay overnight and um, the the boy's room was adjacent to where I was resting. I was uh, reclining on a sofa in a hallway and I was, it was one in the morning. I was drifting off to sleep. I was startled awake by an ear splitting scream. And no matter how many times I tell the story, it still has an visceral reaction for me. All right. I hear the scream. Sounded like somebody was being flayed alive, and so I, I jumped off that couch and fumbled for the wall switch, turn on the overhead light, and as I did, this boy's we'll call him Lucas because that was his name. So Lucas's bedroom <laughs> door, <laughs> why not? You know, let's it euphemize. Works. Let's just call him Lucas. I there are a lot of Lucases out there, and so his bedroom door flies open, you and his body is thrown out. Uh, propelled by an unseen force and i'm standing there transfixed what else could i do i'd never seen anything like this before (laughs) his body was spinning around something like break dancing but hovering off the floor and at a rapid speed and flying around and he's screaming all through this obviously in terror this is something that even by accelerated motor you know muscular performance this shouldn't be happening and he's his body is careening against the walls and he did this a spider crawl on the wall that shouldn't have happened yeah. so i'm watching this this is all of like 20 seconds but the experience of a lifetime and then he did a backwards flip and he landed on the, the sofa where i had been reclining and jumps up and down, flapping his hand. That was the eerie thing to say, to, mm. to watch. And this deep guttural laughter issues from his throat. Like, <laughs> By this time, his parents and his uncle had, had come into the room. Uh, we were up on the third floor. And he turned and glared at me. I don't know why me. But he <laughs> glared at me. I was looking at the face of hatred. You and there. he... he it looked like his gums had receded. He was looking bad, yeah. and he flew at me. And I, I grabbed him in his descent, and I tried to pin him down on the floor without injuring him. I was my normal 200-plus pounds, and he just pushed me right off. And mm. Then he came to himself, but he was shaken and terrified. There, there was no acting this. He was shivering and crying, calling out his uncle's name. Mm. So what we did was, of course, what are you going to do? No, I mean, he had been evaluated by a psychologist, but we decided we were going to perform an expulsion, which is a form of minor exorcism, not the Ritualis Romano, but uh, an exorcism nonetheless. And uh, it was also under the directive of his 
godmother who was Santorian. So there were prayer candles about and incense burning. And I was, we were seated, we, we who were attending, he was at a makeshift altar, the boy Lucas. And he was smiling nervously, but sitting next to this altar. There was, you know, a table with a you know, drape on it. And as it started, as the procedure started, there were people there were praying and chanting. Then it became eerily silent in the room. This, the air was thick. And um, my chair with me in it, I was in the center of the semicircle. My chair with me in it slid back across the floor. My brother's a witness. He can attest to this. And uh, went up against the wall. I mean, it didn't throw me out of it. It just moved with me in it. And the boy fell to the floor and went through his gyrations and, you know, went through this fit. It was something akin to an epileptic fit, but with malice, with personality. And now we would call, uh, well, back then we'd call it disassociated personality disorder. You know, right. now we'd have other more clinical terms for it. Um, so we commanded the spirit to leave him through prayer. Nothing seemed to be working. He was getting more and more agitated, the subject was. And um, my brother remembers in, uh, there was a light a cord coming from the uh, ceiling light. And he turned the light off. And I turned it back on, the over light. He turned it off. I turned it on again. And then he swatted it. And I slowly looked up, you know, so it went into the lampshade and uh, stayed off. And my brother said there was something strangely comical about that. I also could douse with a bowl of holy water. So it went on. And that's where um, I looked at a picture of Jesus on a table. I was hoping Lucas would, that would distract him. He'd look at it. So I looked at it. I looked back up at Lucas. When I looked back at the picture, it had inverted itself. It was upside down. Now, these people, Santorian influence, Saint, Santeria, uh, Catholic upbringing, Roman Catholic. That's why religious icons were being displaced, you know, uh, by that unseen force. And uh, at the climax, well, I started to feel taken over at one point. Now, I was still saying, I just wanted to get back to my parents' house. I knew there was food in the refrigerator. I didn't want to be there. (laughs) <laughs> but I, I knew if, if if I left, how would I ever be able to go back to something like that again? Because I'd have the exit queue in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I stayed, and that also instilled confidence in the people I was trying to help. I ended up directing this expulsion, right? And uh, the um, the boy Luke. Well, I started to feel taken over, and I felt like I could like something was. It was an onrush of emotion that was alien to me. I felt panic and rage, and I felt like something was telling me to jump out the window. Mm. Oh, so we were on the first floor, but I still didn't want to jump out the window. Yeah, I don't. And um, yeah, and I felt it leaving me in the back of my head, like fingers in my head. And right then, as it pulled from me, uh, a girl who was in the row, a young woman, she fell to the floor and started pulling out her hair. So it felt oh. like. It went for me to her because I resisted it. Mm-hmm. Okay, now this is going on for the better part of an hour. And then that boy looked at me because I had taken the lead. Lucas started advancing towards me. He was slender, but my height. And he's walking towards me with his hand outreach. It looked like Bela Lugosi's Dracula. He's, he's coming towards me. I didn't know what else to do. I just held up my right hand and I said, stop. And he paused. And I put my hand on his shoulder. I said, you're going to be all right. And that broke the spell. He was, he was better. 
That was it. I didn't do it alone. I didn't do it alone, but it, you know, that stopped it. That was the climactic moment. And usually, you know, and Ron can attest to this, of course, when you hear about these, these severe cases of paranormal influence, usually the person could be better if it's addressed, they're better for a while. And then, oh, no, it's back. It's coming back. You know, well, he was better after that. In fact, I was in touch with him for a few years afterwards. And I, was, uh, I must have been like um, two, three years, three years after this, this incident. And I asked him about 1983. I said, you remember that time you were like taken over and, you know, you would like kind of another personality was taken over you. He said, yeah, kind of. He said, I, I don't <laughs> remember all of it. I heard some of it. God. It doesn't bother you now. He said, no, I don't think about it. <laughs> he was, he was you know, nonchalant about it. It's like, I, I thought this, this young fellow would be scarred and, you know, right. go, you know, like block it out of his head. He just was ambivalent to it. It was a phase. God. It was an expression. It was his own rebellion that he didn't decide on. Mm-hmm. It just happened. And I'm sure there was some kind of spirit attached to him, propelling him. That the all these thing, factors combined. The other thing, Kyle, yeah. I mean, you can have just regular spirits or ghosts, whatever you want to call them, that will be what you want them to be. I mean, you look at a lot of these uh paranormal playgrounds that they have like eastern state penitentiary and, and they have these things and imagine the, all these people going in asking you the same dm questions every freaking night for one after the one after the one <laughs> so you know i think it comes to a point where you begin to be whatever you want whatever yeah, you... that reality is created and the spirits are yeah. okay this is what in a in a sense vaguely they say this is what they want we'll give it to them you know right. and it wouldn't have been a happy life there in the prison and some people you know passed away there right so of course anybody who's at least a bit psychically sensitive or intuits that they're going to feel that oppression and therefore, there's another formula for a demon. You know, some spirits are kind of happy-go-lucky. They have personalities. Others are are dark. We seem to carry they they seem to carry that over into the next the what we could call the afterlife, and it's all filtered. It's interpretive. You know, I th- I think these things find so, their niche and are created. So you're a paranormal investigator as well, right? Yes. I, so, I am that. In fact, I'm a paranormal investigator who specializes as a demonologist. I wouldn't so, deign to call myself a parapsychologist, but I do, you know, I am interested in study parapsychology. So what do you, what do you carry on your, your investigations with you? Okay. Very simple equipment, usually OPs, other people's, but uh, <laughs> no, I carry a, a, tem- a temperature because they always get better toys, better toys than I have. I've given away, I, you know, a paranormal partner. We used to have a research team and, uh, um, she kept all my stuff, but, um, she, uh, I would carry like a heat sensor, you know, like a thermograph sensor. Mm-hmm. Um, of course it's essential to have some kind of audio recorder. My brother uses analog tape, the cassette tapes. They seem to work well for him as far as recording. Oh my goodness. Extraneous noises, you know, EVP. Yeah. Yeah, they, for some reason they because they don't block out the rest of the noise, and you, sometimes you get things you you know might not have otherwise heard. But I carry a digital uh, audio recorder, you know, a flashlight, of course. And you'd be surprised how people can have a case full of equipment but forget the flashlight. You know. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, and a cam kind of camera, but I use I can use my phone for that too. 
Right. You know, sometimes phones have enough apps that that's all you need for the basics of paranormal investigation. Yeah. You know, and uh, I am a member of a team, a team of two, known as Panorama Paranormal. Panorama because it's eclectic. You know, we don't just specialize in demons or ghosts. You know, if it's an anomalous occurrence, you know, we'll look into it. And that is with Elise Jamako Carlson, who's the director of Panorama Paranormal. And we will work with other teams and other individuals, other specialists. Uh, we're called in by other teams. But uh, as far as the core of that team, it's, uh, it's Elise and myself. And Elise is a smart cookie. Yeah, it happens, but not too often. Too often because he has his team near New England Anomalies Research, and they're addressing a case that's uh, in Rhode Island, and it involves a, a girl. She just turned 16, in fact. I shouldn't give her name, but she's been undergoing possession, and then she comes back. But they're they're willing to uh, to assign that to a psychological imbalance. Okay. But it's not like they never get voices on the recording, the extraneous voices. They do. And that three, those three raps on the wall to which I referred, uh, I, they're very puzzling and very interesting. I don't know why it would often be three knocks on a wall or a door. I was staying with my mother in uh, Greenville, Rhode Island, and you know her last years, and stayed with her for quite a while, actually. That's, that's, I took that's, care of her, but she took care of me. Really? The three, the three is well. the mock, mocked uh, the Christ and the Trinity. and uh, Yes, mm-hmm. mocking, the the, mocking yeah. M-O-C-K, mocking the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And I would hear three, but they were distinct. You know, I know I'm, I've always been interested in weird things, but to hear the three knocks on the door, somebody's there. I've got to go up and see. Some people say, don't open that door. Well, I heard knocks. They'd open up, nobody would be there. Nobody, a lot of elderly people who lived in that building, uh, Anyway, no one could have gotten away silently and, you know, and done that because I was right at the door a few seconds later and nobody's in the hallway. I tell my mother about it a couple of times. She heard it, too. But she said, do you think it's your father? My father had passed away, her husband. And uh, um, I said, you know, Mom, I'd like to think so. And I kind of do think so, but I just don't know. I don't assign anything um, malevolent to it. Uh, Whatever it was, was it my father? Maybe. That's what I'd like to think, but it's just the three knocks. Or was it something because I've been so long involved in demonology? Was it something giving me a hint? Actually, here. I'm hearing maybe three, that. I'm hearing three knocks right now, which means the show's over. <laughs> oh, already? Oh, yeah, well, I'm glad like I got that. in about. Uh, I'm glad I got to mention Panorama Paranormal. While I'm exactly. So Anyways, Kyle, yeah. I was just going to ask you that if people want to find out more about you, how can they do that? Well. Um, I'm not hard to find. I'm on Facebook. I'm probably the only Carl L. Johnson in the state of Rhode Island who's a demonologist. In fact, I'm sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> but Panorama Paranormal, I function with a team with Elise Giamarco Carlson. She's also president of Johnston Historical Society, and she does a good job at that. All right. So and, we do have to go, and so I have to cut you off. Anyway, Oh, well, it's listen- been fun. Have me back. Thank you, Kyle. Yes, thank uh, you've been you. listening to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Ann and Ron. Our special guest has been Kyle Johnson right here on Tojinet. Uh, tune in next week for another great show. Good night. God bless. Good night, everybody. Thanks, Ann and Ron. Good night.
From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.